0: From South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Gavin Jackson, and this is a live South Carolina lead election special. That's right, our podcast is live on the radio. Can you believe they let us do this? Yes, we are less than two hours away from polls closing in the 2024 South Carolina Republican presidential primary as former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley vie for the nomination. We're bringing you analysis and updates this hour for the first in the South primary. Later in the show, we'll hear from South Carolina Republican Party Chair Drew McKissick about turnout, growing the state's Republican Party footprint, and the challenges the party faces nationally. And we have updates as well from our reporters in the field. But first, let's bring Winthrop University political science professor Dr. Scott Huffman on. Scott, welcome to the lead. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And I know we'll be on air later on TV and radio at seven o'clock. But first, Scott, we are here. We're talking to the people. A little preview of what's going to be happening later. Tell us just about the importance of South Carolina. You know, we always talk about first in the South. What does that really mean when it, when it, when we talk about going forward from here to, into Super
1: Tuesday? Right. So for both parties, we are actually fundamentally important because we're a test for both of them. Quickly with the Democratic Party, Iowa overwhelmingly white, New Hampshire overwhelmingly white. So when the Democrats come to South Carolina, it's the first test of African-American support and enthusiasm. And that is such an important part of a Democratic presidential winning coalition us being the first test of it is absolutely key to the Democrats. So that's why we're important as first in the South for the Democrats. For the Republicans, BT before Trump, mm-hmm. uh, you know things were a little different. We used to, and in a way we still do, exhibit every flavor of conservatism out there, uh, especially every flavor of conservatism in the South, from evangelical upstaters, you know, super religious to you know more libertarian leaning in the low country business republicans in the midlands and so we have been a test for the Republican party of the type of Republican candidate who can win in the south now mathematically here's why that matters any in the national election any Republican candidate who can sweep the 11 state south has won more than 50% of the electoral college votes they need to become president and they need fewer than 30 percent of all Electoral College votes in the entire rest of the nation. So we may not match the national party exactly, but we are a test of what kind of Republican can win in the South.
0: Yes, Scott, and you're talking about Super Tuesday. Obviously, we still have not closed the polls here in South Carolina. But, you know, it seems like, uh, as polls have indicated, your poll as well, Donald Trump has super support here, you know, a vast amount of support. What do you think... Uh, would be a win for former Governor Haley tonight uh, because she's already admitted, you know, I'm, she's not going to win here. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've seen those polls, but she's been consistently saying on the trail that closing that gap, you know, it was 32 points in Iowa, was 11 points in New Hampshire. What does she need to do to be competitive going forward and not really just written off entirely?
1: Well, you know, and there's there's two sides to this story. A huge victory for her would be to get uh, her loss down into the teens. That would be absolutely amazing, Uh, you know, given that she is behind anywhere between 30 to 36 points in most of the polls among, you know, likely Republican primary voters and independents. Uh, That would be absolutely amazing. The other side of that double-edged sword is that it would probably mean she got there by reaching out to Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. So it would be impressive to eat up that gap um, and to do so well. But she would have to go forward in the Republican primaries from Super Tuesday on knowing that she's going into those states, essentially saying, I could only come close to Donald Trump by reaching out beyond our party. And that's not a great message to go with.
0: But is that a bad thing for the Republican Party writ large, though, to have a demographic like
1: that? Well, I mean, you know, in a general election, of course not. But you know, the primaries are so fundamentally different. Look at the people who are most likely to turn out. They're the most passionate, even in an open primary like ours. Um, crossover voting previously is constantly talked about. It's it's mostly non-existent. I really do think it'll it'll happen more this time okay. than in previous elections. But it mathematically is not going to give Nikki Haley a victory. Um, but in any primary election, you basically have to win the vote by saying. No, I'm the furthest to the right. No, I'm the furthest to the left. And then, of course, if you get the nomination, you go into the general election and say, ah, oh, I was completely lying. I'm a moderate. Uh, you know, I, this is—I'm I'm wondering, to the wondering, Does middle. she
0: pivot—if she was to get to the general election, would she come back and be more even Republican to offset all the Democratic, uh, you know, thoughts that she's getting all these Democrats?
1: Well, may, you know, one of the things that has fascinated me is the national media hmm. has kept coming to me and saying, you know, so Nikki Haley is a moderate. And I'm like— I'm, I'm sorry. Did you say Nikki yeah. Haley? Yeah. What, you know, it's like those of us who were here when she was the queen of the Tea Party and, and governed know that she governed extremely conservatively. Um, you know, her her biggest fights were not about being too liberal or, or anything like that. They were just very personal fights with the legislature over mm-hmm. a whole lot of other things. But, uh, you know, she absolutely never ran, never won as a moderate. She governed as an extreme conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if anything, she has. You know, the conservative record in this race. Donald Trump, of course, had a very conservative presidency. But, um, you know, before he ran as president, he was a registered Democrat. So, Scott, along those lines, then, when we just heard her talk this week
0: about that decision out of Alabama in the Supreme Court, and she's talking about, you know, personhood, essentially – uh, do you think that that is her just really kind of throwing that red meat back out there and letting people know, yes, I <laughs> I was MAGA before MAGA, you know, I mean, she signed a, a ban here in South Carolina, it was only like 20 weeks or so, but and she's even talked nationally about an abortion ban, and when they're talking about a, a national ban at like 16 or 15 mm-hmm. weeks. But she's always couched that with the fact that that would never get through Congress. So I'm sure anything with personhood, that would never get through Congress. So, of course, she can kind of say these things where, yes, I'm, I'm for the most extreme thing, knowing full well that it will never arrive at her desk.
1: And and yet we've had a court case where something did happen. So, you know, she did uh, uh, definitely play kind of both sides saying, I'm, you know, I I would sign whatever could get through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to be realistic about it. And that was 16, 20 week ban. Um, I think in her effort to reach out to Democrats, this might have been a stumble to straight up say, I like think, a reminder of who she yeah, is, uh, uh, you know, a fertilized egg is a child. That is a reach. That is something that, you know, no Democrat, no independent who leans Democrat and, and few independents are going to jump on board with. So to the degree that the message gets out to them that she said that. That dream of getting crossover votes might be hurt a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So, that was a little bit of stumbling in the messaging. Uh, Honestly, she should have just completely stayed out of that. Sure. And I think, Scott, that's interesting that you said
0: that too, stumbling over the messaging, because, excuse me, that was during, that was later this week, I believe. And early voting wrapped up on Thursday. So there was two weeks of early voting going on, too. So if you're a motivated voter, like we're saying, but also a motivated Democratic voter, then maybe they already cast their ballot. But I want to talk about early voting because there were 205,000 folks that already early voted over that two-week span, now that South Carolina actually has early voting, true early voting. And the top two counties, Scott, with the highest early voter turnout were Ori with 25,352 and Greenville County with 23,711. Those are two areas of the state with a large swath of voters that you know well. But are you are you kind of interested to see that Ori is really taking over Greenville in the upstate? I feel like a lot of folks were always talking about the upstate in Greenville. But of course, we've been talking more and more about the growing coast. So Ori displacing Greenville.
1: Well, you know, the Greenville Greenville-Spartanburg area with all the, the corporations from Michelin to BMW, I mean, the incredible growth that they've seen, that has been one of the fastest growing. In a previous census, actually, York County was the fastest growing comparatively, mm-hmm. although it's nowhere near large enough. Um, but Horry County with retirees coming in, um, that county is growing immensely. But here's the the interesting thing about that. Those two counties with the most Uh, turnout for early voting are both counties where the the Trump- MAGA supporters kind of took over the Republican Party. Those counties are both extremely strong Trump counties. Uh, And it's also, of course, interesting that the early voting tally for Republicans is greater than the total vote tally for the Democrats. And and to remind listeners, the Democrats did indeed have a primary earlier this month. (laughs) Yeah. To which, again,
0: we're kind of talking about that too, Scott, because we're talking about these possibly disaffected Democrats. We're also talking about, you know, maybe Democrats who like to vote on the most competitive primaries, also saw Joe Biden. I mean, it's just a, mm-hmm. a true coronation. But that's what happens when you're an incumbent running. Typically, there's not even a primary if you're an incumbent. We didn't have one for Donald Trump or Obama. Um, but when, I, when we talk about that, Scott, when we're talking about Democrats who might be voting in this primary why would they want to do that why would they want to help out nikki haley if she is the biggest threat to joe biden come this fall based on hypothetical matchup polling
1: right and and that's sort of a, a short-term long-term calculus um there is absolutely you know ambivalence i think in those sort of, they feel strongly both ways they don't want a nikki haley presidency but they are terrified of a donald trump presidency so you know your democratic voter who shows up and actually votes for nikki haley is basically saying to himself i i hope this doesn't happen because she could beat uh joe biden and i don't want a nikki haley presidency but i am utterly terrified of a donald trump presidency and so the democrats who are making this calculation are you know essentially going through some liberal Faustian bargain. that <laughs> <Scott>. <laughs> uh, I mean that they're they're having to, to fight through. Yeah, Soul searching. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> but true. I mean, you're just talking about how uh, we look at the Democratic primary, the first in the nation Democratic primary. Take that, New Hampshire, where I was. Joe Biden won that one. He wasn't even on the ballot, but they wrote him in. Poor Dean Phillips, you know, blown out of the water. New Hampshire, blown out of the water here in South Carolina. 2,000 votes beat by Marion Williamson. Bless uh, his heart. <laughs> Scott. <laughs> uh, but when we look at that, you're talking about 126,000 folks voted for Joe Biden. Uh, 205,000 people just voted for the Republicans early. Uh, like you're saying, blew it out. Uh, what, when we talk about Donald Trump, though, we've talked a lot about Nikki Haley, but Donald Trump really is the king of the Republican Party right now. I mean, ha, how do you see things uh, meshing right now, Scott, when you look at the Republican National Committee, when you look at what's going on there, uh, you look at his legal situations. Um, ha, what's your read on that, you know, looking at the, the trajectory of the Republican Party right now?
1: Well, that's that's about four questions. I know. So yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, so me one I, answer I, though. I, well, I, I actually want to answer a question you didn't ask, Ugh. but you essentially you essentially <laughs> uh, raised was this early voting thing. Remember, sure. Republicans have been saying you know over and over, oh, early voting that leads to fraud, uh-huh. but they've encouraged it this time. Laura Trump, who's from uh, North Carolina, she's married to a- Eric. I think. Yes. Um, and so she actually was at CPAC encouraging early voting, which is not something Republicans have normally been encouraging, especially after the claims of, of ballot shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republican Party, to your question, has fundamentally changed. Yep. This is not uh, your father's or your grandfather's Republican Party in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, I I, I remember um, you know, in the '80s, uh, the the Reagan uh, dynasty essentially. Uh, you know, I my last year of of high school, I uh, I, I was doing well in high school, so I s- literally skipped. <laughs> we believe you. Yeah, I skipped school well, yeah. to stay home and watch the Iran Contra hearings. Well, I mean, because sure. uh, you know, as as one would if you're a political junkie as yeah. a as a teenager, um, and so you look at the things that drove. Uh, a Ronald Reagan conser- conservative uh, uh, party. You look at the things that drove a George H.W., but more George W. Bush, which is very different, very much more reaching out uh, side of our borders, certainly. I mean, Ronald Reagan was very much anti-evil empire, but George H.W., I mean, George W. Bush was very much extending American power. Um, you know, those conservative issues that drove them are gone, are completely gone by the wayside. Both of those presidents pushed amnesty, by the way, for illegal immigrants because uh, this is how we have low-priced food, yeah. is the, these are folks who, who pick the, the crops that that we eat. And so they wanted to reform You know, the border, of course, but they also realized these people are workers, this helps us make money. That's not the attitude of your average Republican anymore. Um, And in fact, the policy coherency, I think, has been sort of falling by the wayside. What is far more important, it used to be you were a rhino, Republican in name only, if you weren't faithful enough to the Republican policies, the, you know, the RNC official statements, now you are a rhino if you, sh- if you fail to show enough fealty to Donald Trump. He has fundamentally altered the party and he has done it in South Carolina just like he's done it in the rest of the nation and at this point we need to, to understand that and I think that's going to drive t- tonight's results. And that's what Nikki Haley's
0: argument is right now, too. She said her big speech on Tuesday that she's not worried about her political future. She's not worried about retribution, revenge. She's not even worried about it being embarrassed, you know, losing her home state, right? And Everyone's like, why does she drop out, you know? But when you're still fundraising money, when you're out fundraising Donald Trump Mm -hmm. in January and you still have it coming in, I mean, why would you get out of the race? Why would you go back home to Kiowa and, what, send tweets when you can— be on the campaign trail, and get live hits on cable news.
1: Yeah, she can continue to raise money um, after this. She, she's done phenomenal raising money. And again, most people drop out you know, after several losses, and the main reason is not because they lost. It's because their fundraising dried up. That is not happening for Nikki Haley. Uh, among the big fundraisers who see a, a, a Donald Trump alternative, even if she's not truly viable... Uh, they're putting their money behind her. And there are there are several strategies that may be going through her head depending on what happens to Donald Trump. But of course, one of them, the big one people are thinking of is, okay, 2028, what if Donald Trump gets the nomination, loses to Joe Biden? Nikki Haley is in the perfect position to say, I told you so. I stayed in the race as long as possible. I tried to save the party. It's, it's my time to do that. Now, she could also stay in for a couple of other reasons. I mean, we've never had a presidential candidate convicted of a literal crime before. Uh, You know, he's lost several uh, civil cases, but he does have a criminal trial coming up. Um, He and Biden are both a little older mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. your your mm-hmm. average 77, 81, yes uh, yeah they are uh, the oldest candidates uh, running for president they broke the record uh, previously held by themselves the last time they ran um, so she could be staying in the the Republican orbit for that uh, you know who knows what's going to happen uh, I you know it when she eventually pulls out yeah. Uh, she will do her darndest, I think, to remain relevant among Republicans. She'll be hitting the the Fox News and, and, and OANN and, and circuit, uh-huh. um, you know, kind of left and right, making sure she's there. And we will have to see if Trump and her make up the same way Trump made up with Lindsey Graham, who was his worst critic yeah. early on, uh, the same way Trump made up with uh, Ted Cruz who, you know, they obviously ran against each other, and Trump literally called his wife ugly. Yeah. Um, Well, I
0: mean, she made up with him after 2016, too, when she backed Floor Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, We know what happened there. And then he, you know, came for her on Twitter and said... Uh, something, something about South Carolina. She said, "Bless your heart," back at her. Yes. Uh, but then, you know, in twenty twenty, she was speaking at the RNC. You know, when Trump was running again. So there, there is that calculus there too. But, you know, she said in her Tuesday speech, which I think that speech primarily, uh, Scott, was to maybe already set the expectations for what's going to happen today, so everyone's not constantly asking. Is she going to drop out after the results from her home state? She's already made very clear she's going to Super Tuesday on March fifth, which is ten days away from now, and going on even to Georgia March twelfth and Florida beyond that. Of course, that's when the delegate math gets even more difficult. Yeah,
1: especially when you get to California, it's done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's eight hundred seventy done for. delegates, yeah. seventy
0: four delegates on Super mm-hmm. Tuesday. Um, but she's been talking about that, fail, uh, you know, pledging allegiance to Donald Trump. But she also said. Other people say, I'm trying to set up a future presidential run. How does that even work? I mean, everything could be a future presidential
1: run, of yeah, course. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, first off, well, you know, let's remember this is a statement by a politician. Um, and <laughs> Disclaimer. It, yeah. And this is the same politician who said she would never run for president if Donald Trump ran. Yeah. All right. So let's put all this in, in, in context. But, um, you know, as, as far as making up or running against uh, Donald Trump, you know, we've seen it before. Yeah. It's, it's That's absolutely nothing new. What I think happened at that press conference was Nikki Haley's team was stunningly savvy. Every yes. reporter in South Carolina was like, she's absolutely not dropping yes. out. Why would she drop out?
0: I said, push me in front of that bus if she drops yeah. out, but I can tell you she's not going to drop out.
1: But, you know, nationally, they were like, oh, she might huh. drop out. Uh. And yeah. so she basically got... A 30-minute live yes. stream of a campaign ad yes. that was just utterly brilliant. Scott, I talked. Her I talked
0: to one. You put the nail on the head right there. Hit the nail on the head. I believe that's the same. Yes, I'm getting. I'm getting a, a nod. Yes, uh, <laughs> but I talked to one of her senior advisors, and I said, "You, you all really have that ability to spin everybody up and get them talking and then own this news cycle." And they did exactly that. And I asked this person, I said, "You know, did you get what you wanted?" And they said, well, we got 30 minutes live on Fox News at noon. And then the news cycle. I mean, I talked to national reporters who were about to fly out that morning who stuck around because she's having a big speech, you know. So working that system to her her advantage there. And we're going to hear from... Uh, Republican Party Chairman Drew McKissick in a moment. But I just want to remind folks that this is LEAD live on South Carolina Public Radio. I am Gavin Jackson, host of the LEAD podcast that you can find on SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org or wherever you find podcasts. And I am joined in studio with Winthrop University political science professor and friend of the pod, Dr. Scott Huffman. And Scott, we're going to hear this clip now from Drew McKissick, who is the South Carolina Republican Party chair. It's about five minutes long here. And he was speaking with South Carolina Public Radio reporter Myon Schechter.
2: Mr. McKissick, over 200,000 people have already voted early. We have high turnout in Greenville and Horry County. What are you expecting as far as turnout tonight? And what do you think that should tell the rest of the country about South Carolina?
3: Well, first off, I think we're going to see a record. Uh, So 208,000 Republicans early voted, which was about 75,000 more than the Democrats had for their entire primary, by the way. So that tells you where the enthusiasm is. It's with Republicans on our side of the street, not with Democrats. Uh, and today I project that we're going to set a record. The record was 765,000 back in 2016. Those early vote numbers tell me we'll blow through that today. Uh, and again, that tells me there's enthusiasm for the party and for our candidates. Uh, and as we look you know, uh, to the rest of the country, or as the rest of the country looks to South Carolina, as they traditionally do for what we're going to do when it comes to the nomination, I will point out that since 1980, no Republican has gone on to win the White House without winning the South Carolina Republican primary ever. Uh, we are the graveyard of presidential campaigns. Uh, that's part of uh, what we do uh, because we're the last state in that one, at a st- one state at a time roller coaster where you can focus all your time and attention on one state to try to do well before you move on to the next group. Well, you know, 10 days after South Carolina, you've got Super Tuesday. So if you don't do well here, you're not going to be able to do well in Super Tuesday and around the country going forward. That's what happens in every single cycle in the past, and I expect that will happen again today.
2: What is it about South Carolina's Republican voters that kind of capture, that give a good snapshot of how the rest of the country will vote? Yeah, South
3: Carolina is, I would argue, very representative of the Republican coalition nationally and has been you know, throughout uh, modern politics. Uh, currently, you know, we've got social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, populist conservatives, national security conservatives, a bigger percentage of retired veterans here in South Carolina than most places around the country. That's very representative of the Republican Party nationwide, and I think that's one of the reasons why we tend to get it right.
2: Obviously, all polling indicates that former President Donald Trump will win tonight. Back in 2020, uh, with him on the ballot, Republicans were able to flip five seats in the legislature. What are your expectations in November here?
3: Well, I look, we look to take more state House and state Senate seats, quite frankly. Uh, you know, we picked up uh, four seats Last time that we hadn't won in 150 years, uh, in addition to other seats that we picked up. Uh, there's going to be a lot of local races we're focusing on this year because we have no statewide race this year, so it's more of a local focus. Uh, but surely pickups in the state house and state senate, county council races, sheriff's races, probate judge races, and things of that nature that's our focus.
2: And you think that Trump helps that ticket?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: I want to ask also about the RNC, which I'm sure you've been asked before. Uh, nah, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, given the fact that former President Donald Trump has talked about wanting to overhaul the uh, RNC, I want to get your views on that and sure. also the comments that Laura Trump has made about the RNC, or that she believes Republican voters would be okay with the RNC funding Trump's legal bills.
3: Well, so first off, what we're talking about is not unusual in the sense of every time that we have a nominee, what happens is you have a merger between the RNC the RNC and the nominee's campaign, to varying degrees and different cycles, but always some sort of a merger, whether it's the political department, the communications department, the field program, so we're not you know, essentially wasting money by paying for things twice that we don't need to, uh, and everything from how we get out, pay to get our message, how we pay to organize, how we pay to handle legal bills, uh, and pay to do the lawsuits that we need to do to get the uh, Democrat local election offices to do the things that they need to do. All this stuff figures into the equation, in addition to campaign strategy. We make sure that everybody's on the same page. So there's always a coming together and having a conversation about how we put the right team together with everybody with their different talents in the right spot, where we can put the best program together to make sure that we win. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about.
2: So it sounds like potentially you would not be completely in favor of all of the money that, coming, that comes into RNC going uh, toward just the You know bills. What I'm saying is you
3: make a decision about how is best to spend your money. In other words, you have campaign finance laws that are different for the campaign than they are for the party. And for super PACs, there are different things that are easier for either entity to pay for based on the amounts of money they can raise and legally how they can spend money. So you're always looking for a strategy that makes the best of what those rules and regulations are.
2: South Carolina has obviously made some changes to election laws over the past couple of years, adding those two early uh, voting weeks. But what has what sort of uh, kind of been your message to voters as they've gone out to the polls today? And we'll go out till seven o'clock tonight.
3: Well, look, I mean, they're a part of the, the best and greatest presidential nomination process in the country. In South Carolina, again, we get it right. We pick presidents here be a part of helping to pick the next president of the united states and also turn out and vote yes on question number one so we can get partisan voter registration here in south carolina and that's something you'll be pushing in the list absolutely absolutely that's why we got it on the ballot
0: that was drew mckissick the south carolina gop chairman talking with our own Mayan schecter there And I am in studio. I'm Gavin Jackson in studio here with Scott Huffman from Winthrop University. Scott, tell me a little bit of a reaction to what you just heard there from Drew McKissick, specifically talking about the Republican Party in South Carolina and the diversity that we offer here.
1: Right. So, you know, one of the things that that he said is that we mirror the National Republican Party. And as a matter of fact, I I think I mentioned this earlier, we're super important to the Republican Party because we actually don't mirror the National Republican Party. Mm -hmm. There are two political scientists, Gibbs Knotts and Jordan Ragusa, uh, currently at the College of Charleston, Mm -hmm. who wrote a book uh, called First in the South. And they did the analysis. They did the math. The state where the two parties mirror the national parties the most, Missouri. Mm. Um however, we don't want to we don't want a Missouri first. Yeah, yeah. Um as a matter of fact, neither state, I mean uh, neither party would want a Missouri first because That's not what it's all about when it comes to a test for who's your best candidate. So again, for the Democrats, we're that first test of black support and black enthusiasm. For the Republicans, we're the first test of southern conservatism, which they absolutely have to sweep the South. If a Democrat cracks the South with two states, the Democrat becomes president. So that's that important. Um, um, to them. So uh, the, the reality is we don't exactly match the National Party, and that's actually a good thing for the Republican Party when they come down here for a test. All of that said, that was true before this party became the, the party of Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, and then uh, he was also talking about picking up more seats in the statehouse, too. It's a general election year. We have both the House members, 124 House members and their districts up for re-election. And then we have the 46 senators, too, uh, up for re-election this year. They run every four years, House every two years. That primary is in June. What do you anything or any early idea about what we could probably be seeing there? I mean, we did see. I might be answering my own question here, but that's what I do. But Scott, we you know we saw when we we were looking at the the abortion debate in South Carolina, for example, right when we got to that six week abortion ban, uh, that was the best that the Senate could do, even with Republicans in the majority there. The House wanted basically you know no exceptions, like just straight up outlawing abortion there, Uh, but that got blocked in the Senate. So, do you think that we could start seeing an even redder state house?
1: Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, our uh, state legislature seats, um, especially in the House, but also in the Senate, are incredibly gerrymandered. Uh, you know, most of the seats often go uncontested in the general election. So, you know, you you might have 70 seats in the the House that are actually uncontested in the general election. So that means the primary is the race. And when that's the case... It's whoever shows themselves to be the most pure or the most radical. And so that depends on the nature of that county and that district. And so you have a place where the MAGA Republicans have absolutely kind of taken over in the party in, you know, Horry County, Greenville County. Mm -hmm. You have places like York County, very fast growing, where there's been a lot of competition. But, you know, in in our last election cycle, for example, we had... I don't know if they were more MAGA or more QAnon, Mm. but people pushing and the mainstream Republican and whoever won would win the election because there was no Democratic competition, but the mainstream Republican won there. So uh, it comes down to the nature of the evolving Republican Party, especially in these districts that are so gerrymandered, there will be absolutely no competition in the general election,
0: and it is evolving. I was going to ask you a question about partisan uh, politics, partisan registration, but we'll get to that in a moment. But when you're talking about evolving Republican Party, we talked about that earlier in this in this episode too. I almost said podcast, but we're on the radio, folks. Uh, but I want to read you what I just saw come across the wire, the AP wire. Uh, our friend of the pod, Meg Canard tweeted this out, and it's an AP story, not by Meg, but by her colleagues. And I'm going to read to you the the lead. Spelt spelled L-E-D-E. I almost fell for it there. But uh, it said, Many voters in South Carolina's Republican primary on Saturday want a United States that is less willing to openly challenge Russia, a sign of how the Cold War-era GOP establishment has given way to former President Donald Trump's America First ethos. On the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and days after the death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, AP VoteCast finds a GOP electorate with lukewarm feelings toward NATO and skepticism about the value of confronting Russian President Vladimir Putin. About six in 10 oppose continuing aid to to Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Circle that back to what we were talking about with Reaganism. How, how jarring is that to see that that transition?
1: Well, you know, um, I mean, I'm I'm sure you could get rid of every uh, blackout in California if you just hooked up cables to Ronald Reagan's grave at this moment because he is <laughs> absolutely <laughs> spinning nonsense. Move over windmills. we got to get the grave. Yeah, I, and I mean, this is such an antithesis mm-hmm. of what the Republican Party had stood for for so long they were you know uh, against authoritarian's that were against them you know yeah. <laughs> we were for authoritarian's in in central you and know, south america so you got to take the good with yeah. the bad scott um, <laughs> so yeah it it depends you want it at low gas prices or what it <laughs> but um uh, you know basically cow yeah. to russia that invaded a sovereign nation yes. in europe uh, where we, as part of NATO, have set the world order since World War II, and we have been the greatest leader of that post-war era world order. Um, your Your Reagan supporter in 84 uh, who believed it was morning in America would absolutely not believe this. But this is, but parties absolutely evolve. I mean, in the South, you know, in the 1870s, the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy. Um, parties evolve. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so the Republican Party is clearly in a, a flexion point of evolution mm-hmm. at the moment.
0: And I do want to talk about methodology here because you're a pollster. You know these things. AP VoteCast is a survey of more than 2,300 voters taking part in today's Republican primary in the state. And it's conducted by the Associated Press. Mm-hmm by NORC at the University of of Chicago. It's NORC or NORC. What do you you guys call it? NORC. Gotcha (laughs) there. Uh, But Scott, uh, they also talked about around half were white evangelical Christians. Roughly 7 and 10 are older than 45. So I mean, those folks that really they knew reagan right i mean like right. They, they were alive during those years and and you're seeing this shift there and that also comes on the heels of donald trump making those comments about nato and yes it's one thing and nikki haley talks about yes you know every nato country should be pulling their weight when it comes to two percent of their gdp being spent on defense but to say that but then also to say russia should invade a nato country that hasn't pulled their weight is a completely different thing. I mean, I was talking about this to international press, and it's just, I think it's jarring on the international stage to hear something like that. Yes, you could be America first and populist, but to openly ask for an adversary to invade an ally, that I mean, that's-, that's Right, that's
1: you weird. know, we were so incredibly isolationist before World War I, um, and we kind of learned our lesson. We were very late getting into World War I, um, and and after that, the a lot of the political elite were we can no longer do this, but Congress pushed back, so we did not have a League of Nations, and we stayed very isolationist all the way up till the eve of World War II. Um, you can look at uh, military uh, history documents on the eve of World War II. The United States Army had fewer than three hundred tanks, but. Only 28 of them were actually functional. So we were not. We were the 19th largest army at the time. And then we became number one. Uh, we set the new world order after the war. And you know, how Donald Trump is is kind of seeking to bring us back to an isolationist mm-hmm. view. Again, the, the America first. yeah, um, But often that comes across as America only. Uh, that is a definite change in the the Republican Party. I mean, I, I remember you know some hardcore Republicans uh, who were you know friends of mine or that I knew at the university. Uh, you know, folks who back during the Bush era, their screen. Do you remember the screensavers that would bounce around yeah. the screen? Oh yeah, I'm old enough their, to remember their, screensavers. Their screensaver was the uh, Republican National Committee. Elephant. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I met no one who was a greater. Uh, Supporter of George W. Bush, Uh, that person now abhors George W. Bush because they represent the wrong side, the neoliberalist side, you know, the the neocon side of the Republican Party. And it is a jarring change, but it is you can justify it intellectually by saying, I love America and this is what is the best for America now. Mm. And you can say, well, that was best for America then, this is best for America now, and you've just morally and intellectually justified that massive international switch. And
0: Scott, I, I know we're talking about the Republican Party, too, because this is the Republican primary day here in South Carolina. And but I want to ask you, I mean, but we're talking about that trajectory, that evolution of the party. Do you see, we contrast it with the Democrats. I mean, they're not evolving at the same rate as Republicans are. Would you say that?
1: Well, no, uh, but that's because the Democratic Party is, as in the modern era in the, yeah. the late 20th century, has always been a bigger tent party. Actually, it's always been a bigger tent party. I mean, you know think of the northern uh, you know Democrats, even pre, much less post-Civil War, Mm -hmm. having to get together uh, to determine who's going to be president with the Southern white supremacist Democrats, with the Democratic two-thirds rule that they couldn't even nominate somebody to run for president as a Democrat unless they got two-thirds of the delegates. And so the Southern Democrats totally controlled that. We are getting a lesson here, folks. uh, (laughs) No, it's okay. We love uh, it. We love it. uh, But yeah. We need more of it. I I lectured about this in my Southern politics class actually a week ago. So uh, (laughs) fresh on on the (laughs) mind. But, um, you know, both parties are changing what we are seeing in the last five to 10 years in the post Obama years for the Democratic Party is the willingness of those further on the left to not give in and say, okay, I'll vote for the mainstream Democrat simply because I don't want the Republican. They are much more likely to stand up to their own party mm-hmm. uh, and say no. And, and, of course, no Republican would think that, you know, the mainstream Democratic Party is moderate. But uh, if you're further on the left, the mainstream Democratic Party is comparatively moderate and they want something much further to the left and they're more willing to say it than they ever have been before
0: yeah and we heard that from uh, michigan democratic congresswoman rashida talib even yes. saying to uh, michigan democrats to vote against biden in the upcoming primary uh but scott we have way more to talk about too but i first want to let our listeners know maybe who are just tuning in that this is lead the south carolina lead l-e-d-e Live on the radio, AT Shire is trying to make me laugh, but uh, again, this is Gavin Jackson, host of Lead, and I'm on with Winthrop University political science professor Scott Huffman. We're talking about the primary because we're about an hour away from polls closing. We were going to grab um, some of our callers, some of our some of our reporters, but they're positioned at the Donald Trump event and also the Nikki Haley watch party. So we'll be going to them live later on ETV when we do our election night special at seven o'clock, which will be simulcast here on Public Radio. You won't be able to see us. Tune in. Listen, whatever. But Scott, I want to talk to you about that because we're going to obviously be hearing from Donald Trump later tonight where he's expected to win. Uh, We also saw Donald Trump hold three campaign rallies across the state over the last two weeks. He doesn't need to campaign. He didn't need to campaign here that hard. Uh, I saw him in Conway, I saw him in North Charleston on Valentine's Day. Did not go to Rock Hill on Friday. Did you go to the Rock Hill rally by any chance um, up there?
1: I I did not. I had the joy of uh, going to a Donald Trump rally in 2016 mm, uh, and it was fascinating uh, you know it's at, but I was one and done mm. uh, you know I didn't want to stand in line, get it is get a long a, it's
0: an arduous process right? and get a, a
1: freedom grope and, and metal detected and whatever else was required to get in so I, I did not. But I did have uh, the the experience of seeing him when he came to the same Coliseum, yeah. uh, and filled it in 2016. Do you have a story you want to share from that? I do. <laughs> uh, so you set me up for this, uh, yeah. Um, at At that rally, of course, I'm in early because you know, You're a big deal. I'm a, I'm a Winthrop employee, and I, I snuck in acting like I was, you know, knew what I was doing and, and was supposed to be there setting up. That's how
0: I got a podcast.
1: <laughs> but I, you know, so I, I wonder, and I'm talking to, and I'm, I, I will blank on the name, but it was one of the leaders of the South Carolina Trump campaign. Okay. And we are, we are standing there talking, and we see walk in Rose Hamid. Now, if you don't know Rose Hamid, she is a, uh, an activist from Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm. Uh, she is Muslim. And, you know, she was against him talking about the, his Muslim ban at the time. She was wearing a shirt that said, "Salam, I come in peace. Mm. And, you know, and she walks up and sits down in her seat. And this campaign director, right, and I, I'm not lo- sure what level, who said, um, excuse me for just a second. And he starts walking up to her. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's going to happen. He's, he's literally going to throw her out before she's done absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. And he walks up. Almost to her row, but then walks along the row in front of her to 220 twenty-somethings, younger people Mm -hmm. and threatens to throw them out because the young man was holding a sign that said Trump likes Nickelback. (laughs) <laughs> that and, would boost your polling these days. And, and so, uh, you know, he took the sign, tore it up and said, you know, if you, you try and do this again, you'll get thrown out. Mm. Did not do anything to Rose Hamid, <laughs> although go. they did when she did stand up with her silent protest about two thirds mm-hmm. of the way through the, the Trump speech. She was escorted out. Yeah. But, uh, you know, apparently. The Trump campaign seeing a known uh, protester yep. was not nearly as damaging to his his potential presidency, in their mind, as being seen as a Nickelback supporter. <laughs> i to have to take a minute on that one, folks.
0: Uh, we love Nickelback here. Nothing wrong with that. Actually, ooh, I'm, I'm being told by a T-shirt producer of the pod that we are a Creed podcast, and I apologize now. Uh, but speaking of protesters, Scott, and we're wrapping up here, uh, I've covered, I covered Nikki Haley's Bus tour over the past two weeks, and like I said, Donald Trump's events too. She's had a multitude of events, crisscrossing the state. A lot of protesters, more protesters than I've seen before. Um, and I don't, you know, I haven't seen any dirty tricks per se play out this go around. I'm wondering maybe if these protesters were sent by someone or not. But um, you know, it's a free Palestine. You also have some Trump people, but you also have Trump people that are just there and not making a noise. Kind of like you're talking about. Like mm-hmm. that could be a potential protester. Um, but it's it's interesting to see that because. They call her a warmonger, they call her a globalist, but, you know, Donald Trump's the one who's talking trash about her husband, who is serving <laughs> overseas right now, and she continues to say that, I don't want war because I don't want my husband to have to go fight, and likewise with military families around the world, so... Um, just had to say that a little bit. But, Scott, we were hearing from uh, from Drew McKissick, who's the uh, SCGOP chairman, and he was talking about partisan registration for primaries for mm-hmm. the entire election process here in the state. We don't have that right now. Mm-hmm. Open primaries. If You voted in the Democratic primary on February 3rd. You can't vote in the Republican one. But you could if you didn't vote in February 3rd. So do you think... Is there a benefit to registering by party? Is there, uh, you know, a bad? Is it bad not to be registered by party? Project chaos that everyone
1: talks about—the crossover vote. Well, you know, again, we may have more crossover vote this time than we've ever had. But usually, the crossover vote is virtually non-existent. Mm-hmm. It is over-exaggerated, and it has never previously made a difference in an election, despite uh, what it's been touted as. But here's the the thing about registering by party and closed primaries, mm-hmm. it nearly always helps the party in power. So you know this that was the kind of thing that the Democrats would have wanted in the early 20th century. Uh, you know when they were in power in South Carolina. Now the Republican Party, uh, you know, we're an R plus 10 state yeah. at least. So the Republican Party wants to solidify its purity and its strength with a closed primary. And in any state it, you know, with a strong Democratic control or a strong Republican control, whichever party is in power, uh, very often, if they don't already have a closed primary, will push for one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that, that of course, was a just a uh, advisory question on the Republican ballot today. It's a non-binding question, binding. uh, But it's it's, uh, just to kind of gauge voters appetite for that. Of course, I would have to go through the statehouse. Like you heard Drew McKissick say, they are pushing that through Mm -hmm. trying to get that done. Uh, hard to see if that's going to be done this year or if it's going to be done at all. Of course, signing die the last day of the legislative session is the second Thursday in May. It is th- almost the end of February right now, so a lot yeah, has to we've, happen. We've, <laughs>
1: got, we've got full, quote, constitutional carry, unquote, yeah. going through. We've mm-hmm. got personhood bills sitting in there. Medical we have marijuana. A, yeah, uh, medical marijuana. Budget, edibles, yeah. edibles only. Stop. Edibles only, so it won't stink. <laughs> uh, so no skunkweed, just gummies. <laughs> But, and uh, a very
0: conservatively written bill, too, from yes. Beaufort Republican Senator Tom Davis about you have to have a pretty serious ailment to be getting medical Correct,
1: marijuana. And all of that's going to be kind of yes. on the, the forefront of the, the agenda and closed primaries will be behind them. Scott we have uh, less
0: than 10 minutes left and I want to ask you going back to this AP vote cast poll that they've done on on the folks that voted today 2300. I South believe County. those are exit polls. Yes, yes, it's somewhat yeah, it's sort of an exit poll AP vote cast. If Matt Kennard was here right now she'd give me all the details and the rundown on that. But they did ask folks about abortion, mm-hmm. which we know we have a 6 week abortion ban here in the state that was upheld by the state supreme court last year. But uh, it obviously maybe not the biggest deal for Republicans right now in the primary, but will be in the general election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found that most South Carolina Republicans want to restrict abortion access. Just over one in 10 say the procedure should be banned in all cases, while nearly half say it ought to be illegal in most cases. Another three in 10 say it should be legal in most cases, while one in 10 say it should be legal in all cases. So how do you see that playing out more? I know I know we kind of talked about this a moment ago when I was asking you about Democrats voting for Donald Trump uh, against Donald Trump by supporting Nikki Haley but how do you see abortion becoming uh, an issue later as we get closer to November will that become the defining issue
1: It it very much could become a defining issue I mean as you just said 40% of Republicans were saying they want to uh, legal abortion most of the time or all the time mm-hmm. and you add on to that people who under some circumstances want legal abortion the overwhelming majority of the Republican party uh, and and these are the most conservative among the conservative on our polls of just republican identifiers in general the overwhelming majority of republicans actually want some legal abortion, uh, you know, in the case of rape or incest or health of the mother or unviability of the fetus, there's some level. Now, you get down to, oh, you know, the mother just can't afford it or they don't want a child. Sure, they're against it there. Mm -hmm. But they do say some level of legal abortion. So to the degree that conservative candidates across the nation push for absolute bans, including these personhood things like, you know, the Alabama uh, Supreme Court case that Mm -hmm. made fertilized eggs and and IVF, uh, you know, potential children. Mm-hmm. That is definitely going to be an issue in this next election. Whether it will be the singular defining issue, no, but it's going to drive a lot of people, especially a lot of, of women to the polls. And yes, Democrats are, are hoping that's the case.
0: Yeah. And Scott, I'm wondering, too, when we get closer to the general election and should Donald Trump become the Republican nominee as expected, uh, we talk about running mates. We talk about the shortlist of who could be his VP. And uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who was running against him for a couple months there last year, is top of that list. He's been a bunch of rallies with him. He's been with him. He's hyping up. He's his hype guy essentially. Uh, what? How, how do you see that working? out? How would a VP like a Senator Tim Scott or a Christie Nome, the governor from South Dakota, how would that help or hurt Donald Trump? Would it? Would it be a benefit?
1: Well, first off, let's let's just see if uh, you know Tim Scott still at the top of the list after the. South Carolina primary is over, ah. um, but I, I expect he will still be on there. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump said, and it's quite true, that Tim Scott has been a better uh, campaigner mm-hmm. for Donald Trump than he has been for himself. Tim Scott is known for um, you know his thoughtful, moderated commentary. He is not a moderate voter; he is a very conservative voter in the Senate, but he's he's known for flying below the radar, which is why this. Girlfriend, fiance thing mm-hmm. has sort of shocked everybody, but Donald Trump doesn't need a, a somebody to balance the ticket, either ideologically or like in the old days geographically. He wants uh, somebody who is a cheerleader of epic proportions. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not Tim Scott can continue to be a cheerleader, but also seen as somebody who brings intellectual gravitas to the race as opposed to, you know, Christy Nome or, or somebody else who is just pure cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that is, is really gonna be up to Trump because, you know, in the end, Trump's not thinking about who can balance his voters Trump is, and now, and his voters know, has always been about Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and a cheerleader, and the best one is who he's going to pick. Uh, Tim Scott may be fulfilling that role. A lot of people accused Tim Scott of of, uh, ad- of sort of uh, auditioning when he ran. Yeah. Maybe he was. <clears throat> Only he could answer that.
0: Yeah, and he—I mean—he had a lot of money going into that race too, and he was a favorite. But just like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. A lot of name recognition, a lot of momentum. But, of course, we are down to former Governor Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump facing off in this primary today uh, and then going forward on March 5th with Super Tuesday. But And, of course, we were just talking about Senator Tim Scott. And AP Vocast said about 6 in 10 South Carolina Republican voters say they have a favorable opinion of him. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Lindsey Graham, a senior senator here, not so much, 4 in 10. And your polling bared that out, too, the least popular Republican uh, statewide elected official in South Carolina. So not great. But uh, Scott, last question for you here as we wrap up before we go on air at seven o'clock on TV and back here on South Carolina Public Radio. What do you see happening when those polls close at seven o'clock? What are we what are we going to be seeing? Obviously, we'll be, we'll be waiting for those results to come back. But what do you expect to happen? Look into your crystal ball for us. What do uh-huh. you see, Scott?
1: Uh, I, I like everybody else. I see a Donald Trump win. Okay. Um, my biggest question is how large is it? And what I want to see, I won't know for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. because it'll take SC, the, the South Carolina Election Commission to come out with the data of actual how many people who had only ever voted in a Democratic primary suddenly voted in the Republican primary this summer. I'll be interested to see that. Um, you know, as as far as it closes, I think everybody in South Carolina knows there's a handful of counties who uh, wait until f- 3, 4 a.m. before yeah. they turn in their their uh, results. So we'll know, but we won't have the final tally by the time we go off the air.
0: Yeah, and we'll be waiting for the Associated Press to make that call, too, before we say anything official. But like you said— They so will like, make
1: that call early. Yeah. Uh, and because the way election polling works is, is they uh, contact— during the day, so there's somebody literally at the polls mm-hmm. physically, and they are given an algorithm. Talk to every third person, gotcha. every eighth person.
0: Well, hopefully they'll they'll still stay around and listen to us talk. Scott, and that's Scott Hoffman. He's a Winthrop uh, University political science professor, and that wraps up our live South Carolina lead election night special. Stay tuned to South Carolina Public Radio this evening for more coverage of the SC Republican Presidential Primary at seven o'clock. Join us for live results as polls close. We'll have analysis with Scott. And updates from our reporters in the field and much more. That's 7 o'clock right here on South Carolina Public Radio, SCE TV channels, and streaming live at youtube.com slash South Carolina ETV and on C-SPAN. Our producer is A.T. Shire, our supervising producer is Amy Crouch. Sean Birch is our executive producer. You can always find the South Carolina lead on South Carolina radio.org and wherever you find podcasts, they're everywhere, folks. I'm Gavin Jackson. Thanks for joining us and be well, South Carolina.